Look, staying healthy isn't easy. Watching your diet, hitting the gym, avoiding stress. But a good night's rest helps boost your overall health and wellness. And it couldn't be easier. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed effortlessly adjusts and responds to both of you. The result? You wake up ready for anything. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. Don't miss our weekend special. Save $1,000 on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus free premium delivery when you add a base. Ends Monday. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Hi, this is Cal Ripken Jr., and you're listening to the ML Sports Platter. The ML Sports Platter back with you all over the major platforms. Download, subscribe, leave feedback, and a five-star review where you get podcasts on your smartphone device. I'm on Twitter at Mike L Sports and on Facebook and Instagram, ML Sports Platter. Be sure to be on the lookout for my one-minute ML Sports takes and nine-minute with Mike Lindsley segments from Rosie's Corner, a proud sponsor of the platform. Pizza, wings, pasta, hot and cold subs, and more. Get in every single week. For Fish Friday, that mac and cheese is available on Thursdays and Fridays as well. I'm Grubhub. Get it. Unbelievable stuff. I recommend the garlic parm wings. They are to die for. Rosie's Corner, a proud ML Sports Platter sponsor. A big tip of the cap. Thank you as well to Welch & Company Jewelers, the Vince Aguirre Consulting Group, and CNY Electrical. If you're in and around Central New York or even beyond in the great state of New York, you need some commercial or residential electrical needs and help. Folks, go with them. Sean and his team, they're amazing. I see their trucks all over the place. CNYelectrical.com for more information. Super happy to bring on to the program Jeff Mangold. He is the author of a brand new book. It's called Power and Pinstripes, Untold Stories of Barra, the Boss, and Building a Yankees Dynasty. The forward, of course, is by Mariano Rivera. And uh, Jeff did the book with Peter Body as well, the longtime Yankees author, writer, and insider. And oh, by the way, Jeff Mangold, three-time World Series winning strength and conditioning coach, 17 years with the Yankees and the Mets. This book having a lot to do with his years training the New York Yankees. Jeff, this is amazing. How are you? Mike, thank you. Appreciate you having me on today uh, with all your listeners up there in central New York. Let's start right in on some good stories. You know, give me some some blow-away material from the book, your experience, etc. You know, being a strength and conditioning coach for, really, the the powerhouse team in professional sports history, the New York Yankees. Yeah. Uh, I, I would say early on during the my first tenure with the Yankees, which was from 1984 to 1988, you have to give credit to, to George Steinbrenner, the owner, to be an innovator and not an imitator because at that time there were not any other, any other strength conditioning coaches in the major leagues. Uh, and you got to give George credit for stepping forward and having that innovation. But you know, one, one story out of many, my first year with, with the Yankees were in spring training in Fort Lauderdale at the time. That's where we trained. We're in a post game meeting because, uh, George was quite upset with, uh, thinking that somebody is leaking information to the writers, to the media. So we're outside in his trailer, in his office, in the parking lot. And he's telling us this, that he's, up, he's upset. Somebody's leaking information. So he goes, Mangold, get up. I want you to go outside the trailer here. Go down the steps. And I want you to look around and look underneath this trailer, too. I See if there's anybody listening to us right now. I'm going, what? <laughs> and I said, well, he's... Yeah, I think to myself, he's the boss. I better follow through on this. So I get up out of my chair and from George's office in the trailer, walk down the three little steps down to the ground, and I look around and I said, 
I better get down on my knees and look underneath the trailer. I better <laughs> follow through on this. So I get down, look under the trailer, go back in. I said, George, we're good. You know, everything's fine. We're good to go. So I'm thinking, gosh, this is, uh, you know, welcome to the big leagues. When you first laid eyes on Derek Jeter and first laid eyes on Mariano Rivera, what went through your mind? Was there anything early that you said, man, these guys are a little different here. They could they could be all-timers. There's, there's a different section of players all-time, right? And these guys are in it. Did you did you have a feeling at all in the beginning with those two? Their calmness. Yeah? Their, their confidence. Their approach every day to any situation, whether it be 10,000 people in the stands in an afternoon game at Comiskey Park in Chicago or... 55,000 people at Yankee Stadium in a playoff game, their approach seemed to be, that seemed to be the same, it was the same, that they they approach every game uh, with, the, with the same amount of effort and the same amount of confidence and both of them exuded a, a some people just have a certain aura about them that people uh, like a magnet that people just notice them. If they walk into a room anywhere, they're the type of, type of guys that you instantly notice and you gravitate to. We uh, obviously are, are super thrilled right now to be talking to uh, Jeff Mangold, the terrific author uh, with P- Peter Body, the new book out. Uh, it's called Power and Pinstripes, My Years Training the New York Yankees, the forward by Mariano Rivera. And if you know Jeff's background, his resume is unbelievable. Three-time World Series winning strength and conditioning coach, spending 17 years with the Yanks and the Mets. You can get him on Twitter as well, by the way, at Jeff underscore Mangold, the number 23. The game of baseball today, it, it saddens me, Jeff, because I think the game is just completely and utterly unrecognizable. The analytics have, I, I'm, I'm a fan of some of them. I understand OBP and war, and, and that's about as far as I would stretch it. But you've got launch angle, you have spin rate, you have whip, you have all these different things. You have uh, the shift and defensive metrics and contracts being signed because of, of the way the game is. People strike out, they walk, or they hit a home run for the most part. There's still a few things in between. The Padres are doing their thing. But it leads me to this question. With the way the game is played today, with the emphasis on slugging the ball over everybody all the time, that's created muscle men. It's created uh, a launch angle. It's created a different style. It's created you know these geeks getting into players' heads. Here's how you have to play in order to stay on our baseball team. You're a, you're, you're a guy who knows strength and conditioning. You're a guy who, who, who worked with the Yankees in the match. You've been in baseball for a long time. What do you see, how do you respond to all these injuries in baseball and the Yankees in particular, who for now multiple years in a row, they, they can't get out of their own way with these injuries? Yeah, it's, a, it's such a, a, a gray area of, I think there's many intang- uh, intangibles or tangibles that go into this of the, being prone to injury or having a, a mass amount of injuries and it comes down to one aspect is that the connective tissue of the body is not strong enough to withstand the, the forces which it produces to throw and to run and to swing. A lot of these guys are so strong, their muscle mass produces such force that 
tendons and ligaments and the supporting musculature in certain areas, especially when you twist in the rib cage and uh, oh, in the legs with the with the hamstrings that are having such force that it just cannot cannot, cannot withstand it. Uh, you know, the other people people mention of teams are more guarded and the agents are saying to their players, listen, if you feel something, if you don't feel right, let the athletic trainers know right away so that you're not going to be down for a long period of time. But a lot of these guys are down for extended periods of time. Yeah. So it's, it's tough. It's, it's really a, it's a, it's quite a question. And it's, if I could bottle that, that, uh, I'd be like Zach Brown with my toes in the water and my ass in the neo. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I, I mean, look, in no sport, I mean, you don't want your stars out. I mean, that's, that's you know, baseball does such an awful job with marketing, even when they're in there and playing. I just, at it, some point in the season, you've got guys, Trout's gone, Tatis is gone, this guy's gone, that guy's gone, a bunch of injuries with the Yankees every year. Just, it's a bad look. There's guys injured all the time. What was your relationship like with David Wells? That uh, number one, he was he was a better athlete than what he looked like. <laughs> uh, that he was a you know big guy, rotund guy, and my relationship with him, my first time I met him was in uh, nineteen ninety eight when I was rehired by the Yankees. I flew down to Tampa just to see the facilities, maybe meet a few people, some administrators, coaches. This was about a month before spring training started. Pretty good year, by the way, to jump back in, huh? <laughs> yeah, it was. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So I, I go down to Tampa, and I'm in the athletic trainer's room. David Cohn and Boomer are in there getting some, some work done and just hanging out. So I get introduced to him, and Boomer goes, you know what? Uh, he says, you know, I pitch better when I'm heavy, so... Uh, <laughs> You know, that's, that's, that's how I am. I go, so I say to David, I go, well, it looks like you're getting ready to have a pretty good year. <laughs> so it, uh, so immediately he and Coney look at each other like, oh, who's, what's this guy? <laughs> you know, but you, you have to give him credit that when, once he got on the mound, that he was all business and he had, he had one of those breaking balls, that curveball, that, oh, that 12 to 6 curveball that that there are a couple people that I've tried to, even though you know that pitch is coming, if you're playing catch with them, you can't catch it. It breaks so much, so sharp, and you know it's going to break, but it's, you can't, I couldn't catch it. But just think of trying to hit it. He, he, Tony Lilly, I mean, uh, uh, Ted Lilly? Ted Lilly. And another guy close to it would be Andy Pettit. Yeah. They're, they're sharp. Breaking ball at the end, it just blows you away. There's no doubt, and, and and I'll tell you something. The Yankee dynasty of that time, that's the last true baseball dynasty, as you know, Jeff. The Yankees, if you bring it up, baseball people, they immediately will go right to the, the big five. People say core four. I go big five. You can't leave Bernie Williams out. I understand he wasn't there for 2009, but he was an early, early Yankee, a farmhand, etc. They go to Pettit, Rivera, Posada, Jeter, uh, you know, Bernie. Uh, uh, you know, or they go right to Mo and Jeter. Uh, they go to the great bullpen, which was led by Rivera. They go to Joe Torre. They go to uh, all the collection of hitters. Where while they weren't built totally on the home run, they hit them out when they needed to. 
and, and they hit for average, and, and they never really led the league in home runs. They jumped to those things. Very rarely do they jump to the pitching. The starting pitching, you could argue, through those five, six, seven, eight years, Jeff, they had like three or four aces on the team, and not just aces, guys who you could, unlike today, other than Garrett Cole, go into October with and trust. Cone, Key, Pettit, Wells, El Duque. That starting staff was lights out. Mike Messina. Well, later on, absolutely, sure. Yes. Yeah, I mean, he never won a World Series with him, but he was still unbelievable in the playoffs. Yes, yes. Yeah. That, and it, and it, did, uh, it did make it make it easier on on relievers. Roger Clemens, too, would, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Pettit. Yeah. And, yeah. But these starters would go deeper in the ball games. Uh, they would go six, seven innings, and then they would you would bring in a Jeff Nelson, you'd bring in a Mike Stanton sure. or a Mendoza. Uh, yep. Yeah, Mario Mendoza. Yeah, and then trot out trot out Mo Mariano to, to finish things off. But as you mentioned, Mike, that team beginning in '98 when I when I uh, came back to the Yankees, it is the chemistry that was involved that was off the charts is something that maybe a general manager can try to uh, bring together. You look at their physical talent, you look at their performance, but the one thing that you really can't captivate is what type of, what type of person they are, especially over a four or five month period when all these players are together, there's going to be arguments. There's going to be, uh, disagreements, but you also have to have uh, have fun to love each other and to realize once you go onto that field across the between those lines that it is all business and these guys were all business. Jeff Mangold, our guest here with Peter Body. The new book is out: Power and Pinstripes. My years training the New York Yankees, the forward by the Hall of Famer mariano rivera major bookstores and uh and online where books are sold make sure you go pick this one up a couple more for you here jeff uh you had unique relationships right and sort of personal tales in terms of finding your way with with multiple yankees two of those guys were dave winfield and ron guidry get into that a little bit yes that winfield was just a he was drafted in college by the uh, three major three three of the professional sports which I don't think I don't think has ever been done before. Uh, NBA because he played at University of Minnesota basketball. He was drafted by the Utah Jazz. He was drafted by the Minnesota Vikings, even though he never played collegiate football, and by the San Diego Padres before the Yankees acquired him. But he was such a physical talent, but just a sharp intellectual personality, and to be able to watch him play every day was. Uh, a treat you might say and but also of elevating young kids young players to behind the scenes to take care of these guys even if it was financially uh jose rijo young pitcher that came up i this is one of the stories in the book he came up to the major leagues and that he didn't have any proper clothes to go on the road trips and he had a sport coat that came about halfway up his arm that he probably had since eighth grade. <laughs> and Winfield and Don Baylor took him out and outfitted him with multiple suits and clothes to to look the part and be the part and, and be welcome. And the other gentleman you mentioned was uh, Ron Guidry. Yep. 
and he could he could go a whole ball game without saying a word. Especially if if he wasn't pitching, he would just sit on the bench, and he'd have his little skull bandits in and do his uh, his little uh, enjoy his little skull bandits. And uh, but his he and Mariano were quite alike physically. Just so wiry, so explosive to be able to generate such force. Uh, and that what that's what would the end result would be their their pitches and their, their fastballs and their consistency. And he and Mo both were they, they might have been if he had to rate the center fielders in, in baseball without without them playing probably a, a game in center field, those two guys might be the top five defensive players. You should have seen those guys during batting practice. They were both man center field during their respective times. They would they would run down balls and make spectacular catches. Well, I yeah, and late, late in his career, I mean, Mariano, you know, tore his ACL doing that. You know, he, he was out there screwing around, uh, you know, and, and, and such a great athlete. There's no question. The wiry act it was amazing by Guidry. And that 78 season was out of control, and obviously Mariano just waltzing into the Hall of Fame, as you know, as the greatest closer of all time. Um, what do you hope people say about the book when they get done reading it, Jeff? I think that that they one thing they'll they'll get to know that the daily grind of a Major League Baseball season, but also the the exhilarating moments that can happen at any with along any day. You never know what is going to happen when you go to the ballpark, whether it be a perfect game, whether it be somebody hit uh, four home runs, whether you're going to see a young talent for the first time like Bo Jackson come come on the field and just uh, just make your eyes uh, about pop out of your head from, from the athleticism and the power and the speed. Yeah. Uh, but also of... To, to be able to adapt, the, the, I think the book is about timing and the and the ability to adapt to change, and to to be ready for uh, each day that you never know who you're going to meet, you never know who's going to be on the other end of the phone, whether it be in sports, whether it be in business, or any type of any type of line of work that you're in, that uh, to never give up. There's a lot of hard. There's some hardship that's that's in the book even uh, family-wise, that just to have faith and to have confidence and to keep moving forward. Well, it's out. Major bookstores, Amazon.com, uh, anywhere online books are sold. Reviews are incredible. Yankees fans will not want to miss this unique perspective on the franchise during one of baseball's most exciting and controversial eras. It's called Power and Pinstripes, My Years Training the New York Yankees by Jeff Mangold with Peter Body and the forward by the Hall of Famer Mariano Rivera. Jeff's resume speaks for itself. 17 years with the Yankees and the Mets, three-time World Series winning strength and conditioning coach on Twitter at Jeff underscore Mangold, the number 23. Jeff, thank you a million for coming on. You're always welcome. Thanks uh, 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 just a a bunch for, for doing this. And, uh, hey, continued success, and the book's going to do uh, great things here down the line. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me, and uh, let's get together again soon. Appreciate it.
ML Sports Platter is brought to you by our great friends at Stanley Law Offices, Brian Conboy of Mass Mutual New York State, and Ken's Auto Detailing. If you're in and around Central New York, get on over to Ken's Auto Detailing in Cicero. They're doing the ceramic coating inside, outside, wax and wash. You'll drive off your car, and I swear to you, it will feel like you have a brand new car. Get on over to Ken's Auto Detailing, a proud ML Sports Platter sponsor. Tip of the cap, thank you as well to the Swan and Whitaker families for their support of the platform, as well as Welch and Company Jewelers and Axe Exotic Pets. He is the author of The Best Little Baseball Town in the World. It's Galen White. Go get it. Major bookstores, Amazon.com, GalenWhiteBaseball.com, and on Twitter, at Galen White. Galen, welcome aboard here, pal. How are you? My pleasure. Well, look, congratulations, you know, obviously on the book, uh, the, the Best Little Baseball Town in the World. Tell my listeners where that town is, how it became the little baseball town in the world under that superlative, the best. Crowley, Louisiana is about 70 miles west of Baton Rouge. Uh, the closest, uh, slightly closer town is Lafayette, Louisiana. I didn't know where Crowley was until I started working this book in 2013. What got my curiosity was it's, Star slugger Conklin Merriweather, the home run king of the Evangel League that they played in, a Class C league, made up mostly of Louisiana teams. He, uh, after uh, leaving baseball, he killed his mother-in-law with an axe. And I had not heard of Conklin Merriweather until one of his former teammates mentioned him to me and said uh, he was the sorriest person he had ever seen, but also the greatest hitter he had ever seen in the minor leagues. So, as I said, that cur- that got my curiosity going, and I found out that there was a lot more to the story than just Conk Merriweather. Uh, Crowley became known as the best little baseball town in the world because from 1951 through 53, a, the town of 12,700 people topped the attendance mark, 100,000 mark in attendance three straight years, uh, prompting someone to... Uh, do the math and say that was equivalent of the Yankees drawing 80 million fans at Yankee Stadium. So this was also, a, I mean, a, a golden era in some respects of baseball overall. I mean, how much did it have to do with the fact that baseball was at that time probably the, the number one sport in the country? It was. In fact, in 1949, there were 59 leagues with 447 teams. By the end of the decade, in 59, you had 21 leagues with 156 teams. Crowley, however, did not have a team until 1950. Uh, it uh, had a ballpark, however, uh, kind of like out of Field of Dreams. They built it, and they will come. They built the ballpark in 1948. In 1950, they uh, began uh, in a, a new league called the Gulf Coast League, and then in 51, they got into the Evangel League, the league they wanted to be in all the time. But Crowley actually came in after the peak of minor league baseball in 49. And in 51, 52, when they started to draw these big crowds, the minors were starting to suffer then from uh, the combination of air conditioning and television. Crowley, it didn't affect them until 1954. Okay, so today's game, fast forward to right now, a lot of people are down on the game, including me. A lot of it has to do with the analytics. You've got the you're cutting of scouting departments. You've got the minor leagues being messed with with Rod Manfred. I don't know what the heck he's doing with these new rules. 
uh, putting a guy on second in extra innings. I mean, it's a game that some of us don't even recognize anymore. After writing a book like this, being a longtime baseball fan, baseball media guy, being an author, you know, traveling around the country, being in a bunch of ballparks through the decades, are you bothered by the game today? Does it sadden you the way it, you know, it is and, and what, what's become of it? Absolutely. It's awful, isn't I, it? It is. And, I, of course, I'm seeing the grassroots through my uh, books. All five of my books or four of my five books have uh, focused on the minor leagues, particularly in the 50s to some degree into the 60s. But uh, your uh, MLB is messing with the heart and soul of baseball, and that is the minor league fan. Uh, most fans, such as myself, I mean, I grew up in Los Angeles. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. But uh, in my early years, the uh, L.A. was a minor league town. Sure. We had we had a minor league ballpark named Wrigley Field, which actually was the original Wrigley Field. The right. one in Chicago was called Cubs Park right. and then later renamed. So I went to see ball games with my father and my brother at Wrigley Field, which was just like the one in Chicago. And and so that's that was the bond that I formed with baseball. And it's similar to most fans. They didn't they didn't bond with baseball in Major League ballparks until the Braves moved west to Milwaukee in '53. Sixteen, uh, eleven of the sixteen Major League teams were in five cities. You had two in Boston, three in New York, two in Philly two in St. Louis, and two in Chicago. So it was not the national pastime except for in the minor leagues. And that's where the, the fans bond with the players and follow them as they move on up into the majors. And, and here's the thing. A lot of the modern analytic people will say, oh, you're just being the get-off-my-lawn guy. This, no, I'm not. Because I'm not saying we have to have baseball you know, be Willie Mickey and the Duke again in the 50s or have the great Maris Mantle, Yankee teams, Yogi Berra, etc. right into the, when the game changed and more black players were inserted and Latin players and you had speed and pitching and all the rest with the Cardinals and the Pirates and into the 68 season with Gibson and McLean. And I'm not saying it has to be like that. How about just five years ago, five, six years ago, eight years ago, 10 years ago, even 15, 20 years ago, hell, you and I, I'm, I'm sure you would agree with this. I can't speak for you, but I'm sure you you, you would agree, and I'll, and I'll let you have your turn. Obviously, the steroid era was a time that really disappointed a lot of people, traditionalists uh, among others, that, man, the game's, the game's going down. You know, the numbers are going down. Barry Bonds ahead of Hank Aaron. This, this isn't right. 500 home runs isn't what it used to be. Steroid era was an era that baseball still hasn't taken responsibility for, and it should but you know what? The the game was better, you know, during the steroid era. It was better then than it is now, right? Yes, I uh, the steroid era. What it did is distort all the stats that we've become uh, accustomed to and have relied on to measure uh, the different players in the game. In my previous book, Left on Base in the Bush Leagues, I write about Joe Bauman, who set the minor league uh, record for home runs and was the all time record of 72 in a single season, uh, pre-steroid, by the way. Uh, uh, you know, Barry Bonds comes along and hits 73. So I write about Joe Bauman. You know what? He, he he ate beef and drank beer. All right? That's how he hit his 72 home runs, and he did it in uh, 140 games. So uh, when you look back and you see what some of these guys did uh, earlier on with some of the numbers, that's impressive. I look at these guys today. And I'm not all that impressed. I know they're great athletes, but the game, like I say, getting back to the heart and the soul, 
they've lost that in terms of the fan. The fan is turning elsewhere to devote their attention. And uh, uh, I mean, I look at the town of Crowley, Louisiana, which I write about in this book. Uh, it's, it still loves baseball. In fact, they restored the ballpark that they built in 1948. They restored it 50 years later. And then during the pandemic, they spent $5 million to upgrade it, put in artificial turf, which I don't like, but in southwest Louisiana, it makes a lot of sense because of all the rain during the summer. And they put in new lights uh, and new seating. And uh, they're, of course, hopeful of attracting youth tournaments. But it's a great little ballpark, probably better now than it ever was. But uh, the town still loves baseball. And the town did not turn its back on baseball. Baseball has turned its back on little towns like Crowley, Louisiana. Go get the book. It's all over the place. Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, major bookstores. It's called The Best Little Baseball Town in the World, the Crowley Millers and Minor League Baseball in the 1950s. The author is Galen White. You can check him out at GalenWhiteBaseball.com and pick up a bunch of his other books as well, like Handsome Ransom Jackson, Accidental Big Leaguer, uh, and Singles and Smiles, how um, uh, Artie Wilson broke baseball's color barrier. Terrific stuff there as well. Um, Galen, what do you hope people say about this book when they get done reading it? One, that uh, most people are telling me that it's a fun read. It's an easy read. In fact, the town of Crowley is known as the rice capital of America, so <laughs> they're saying it's a rice and easy read. Uh, <laughs> nice. I, I hope Nice. I, I hope that they learn uh, one thing, and that is about small-town Americans. Yeah. Uh, baseball needs to focus more attention on small-town America. Now, there's a way of doing that. They have, uh, for at least two years, I think, played some games in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, uh, in uh, during the Little League World Series. They're planning a game in uh, Iowa, connected with the Field of Dreams. So do something to reconnect with small-town America. It might be through uh, barnstorming during spring training. They used to barn, the teams used to barnstorm their way north, uh, getting ready for the season. Why not do that again briefly? Go to some of the smaller towns. There's some neat ballparks in smaller towns. There are some historical ballparks. Rickwood Field in Birmingham, Alabama, which was built in 1910, used by both the Birmingham Black Barons and the white team, the Birmingham Barons. Um, that ballpark is used once a year for. Uh, a game there to kind of relive the the era of uh, the Rickwood Field. Go to Rickwood Field. Go to Grayson Stadium in Savannah, which is a neat little ballpark uh, that's been around since around 19, 19-teens. Go to uh, Roswell, New Mexico, which still has a ballpark where Joe Bauman hit 72 home runs. Uh, go to places where it has some history and do some things that reconnect with fans at the grassroots. That's what MLB can do. Plus, uh, do something about their postseason uh, arrangement with the television networks that have the games lasting to the wee hours of the morning, oh. and, y- and young kids can't uh, even uh, watch the entire game. There's so much wrong with the game today. It's just, it's unbelievable. You mentioned, you know, L.A. and, and West Coast and, and you growing up. Who, who did you grow up loving for players? Well, I grew up uh, a fan of the Los Angeles Angels. They were a farm club of the... Uh, Cubs, both owned by the Wrigley family. Uh, the Gene Baker, who was part of the first all-black double play combination with Ernie Banks, he was a star shortstop for the uh, Angels when I was just a kid, and uh, he went up to the Cubs along with Banks in 1953, and Baker actually was the better shortstop, 
but he moved over to second base because he was more experienced and could handle the change better. But Gene Baker was one, Steve Bilkel, who I write about in the Bilkel Athletic Club. Uh, Bilkel was a rookie with the Cardinals in 1953, wound up with the Cubs, I mean, with the Angels from 55 through 57. And I was uh, fascinated because he had 148 home runs in three seasons. So when the Dodgers came to L.A., uh, Mike, in 1958, I, I was not happy. I loved my minor league baseball. Across town, there were the Hollywood Stars. They were affiliated with the Pittsburgh Pirates. 1956, we saw a second baseman named Bill Mazeroski. Not bad. They also had some pitchers named Luis Arroyo, Bob Perky. Again, not too shabby. And there were some good ball players in the Pacific Coast League. And so that's what I grew up on. And then when you had the Dodgers come out and play in the Coliseum, a monstrosity of a ballpark, and taking fans away from what was a great ballpark in Wrigley Field, I wasn't happy. Oh, I don't blame you, and it's it's kind of like uh, you know, hey, what what are you doing here? You know, you wake you wake up in your house, you look out the back window, and there's you know there's tractors and bulldozers, and they're changing your backyard. You know, it's it's uh, <laughs> it's one of those type deals. Um, I wanted to end with this. G- give me in the book. Give me some colorful characters on that Miller's Club or. You know, in minor league baseball in the 50s, guys who you kind of dive into in the game, on and off the field, some tales and, 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 and tribulations in between, just like some colorful characters. They they had a outfielder named Jimmy Moore who was uh, one of the more colorful characters. He once called timeout during a game, <laughs> and the umpire went out to find out what had happened. He said, well, there's a mosquito mosquitoes flying around out here with chains around their neck. Uh, there was a shortstop from uh, Brooklyn named Mike Scivoletti. They couldn't understand him, and uh, he couldn't understand the folks in southwest Louisiana. But he had quite a following. Uh, uh, one fan said to him, Scivoletti, I'd like to buy you for what I think you're worth and sell you for what you think you're worth. So uh, a lot of colorful characters. One of the more compelling chapters, Mike, has to do with uh, uh, a ball player, Andy Strong, being killed by lightning during a game. It was a center fielder. The game was in Alexandria, Louisiana, in uh, 1951. In fact, this is a 70-year anniversary. And so I interviewed uh, the play-by-play announcer, Ed Kime, who was the voice of the Crowley Millers. Uh, His signature call was, Oh, Happy Day. But on that particular evening in Alexandria, of course, it was very sad. And his, his, his call, when it first happened, was lightning has hit this ballpark. So I interviewed Ed about what happened, and that is quite a compelling chapter. One, I don't think you'll forget. Well, I would suggest to everybody to go get the book. It's absolutely terrific. The best little baseball town in the world, the Crowley Millers and Minor League Baseball in the 1950s. Uh, Galen White, of course, is the author. You can visit GalenWhiteBaseball.com, grab this book, grab a bunch of the others, including the Bilko Athletic Club, the story of the 56 Los Angeles Angels, and, of course, left on base in the Bush Leagues, legends, near greats, and unknowns in the minors. Galen White has done it all with those books. Amazon.com, major bookstores, Barnes & Noble, you know where to go. Uh, go get it, and of course, follow Galen on Twitter as well, at Galen White. Galen, thanks so much for a few minutes, man. Continued success your way. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. The ML Sports Platter is brought to you by X Exotic Pets, Rosie's Corner, Prestwick Golf, and our great friend Brian Conboy over at Mass Mutual New York State. Tax-efficient retirement planning today with Brian. Go see him. 
at advisors.massmutual.com. Get your financial future in order today with Brian Conboy, the official financial advisor of the ML Sports Platter. He's also on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. Back-to-back authors for this podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. This is the ML Sports Platter. Thanks to Jeff Mangold. Thanks to Galen White. I'm Mike Lindsley. Get me on Twitter at Mike L Sports. And as I always tell you, enjoy the games. This is Discover, and we take customer service very seriously. We know that if you have a question or concern about your credit card, that's a serious matter, and you need to talk to a real person about it. So we offer around-the-clock access to seriously talented representatives in the USA. Again, it's a serious endeavor. The only funny thing about it is Bob. If you call us and Bob answers, you're in for a treat. Get 100% U.S.-based customer service and talk to a real person day or night. Discover exceptionally common sense. Weekdays starting at 4 on NBC4. Another school year with so much uncertainty. News 4 is working for you, dedicating important coverage to keeping kids safe at school. Helping you navigate the biggest issues facing parents, children, and teachers. And giving you expert guidance from local doctors and educators. And showing you ways to manage stress. Weekday afternoons starting at 4. We'll help you get through the school year safely. Weekdays starting at 4 on NBC4. We're working for you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.